Hi, welcome to the second episode of My Friend Voldemort. I'm Dennis Stevens. This is a podcast that helps emotionally mature people understand and interpret American news as it relates to politics. The rhetoric of polarization in public discourse is a persuasive argument that is very good for ratings, but is very bad for American public discourse. We can understand us versus them political rhetoric as propaganda, but on another level, we can understand it as effective ratings boosting public relations that is intended to satisfy a very human urge. And that is the desire to feel better about one's own attitudes, beliefs, and values, and to make an enemy out of those people that disagree with us. And so there's this question about my enemy Voldemort or my friend Voldemort. The choice is in us. So here, our job is to develop a vocabulary that distinguishes news in the public interest from news entertainment and learn to better recognize the connection between polarization rhetoric and news as entertainment. Because news as entertainment is more popular than news in the public interest. This is because news as entertainment appeals to our fundamental desire to be right about our understanding of what is best for America. Nobody likes to be wrong. Mistakes were made, but not by me. News as entertainment, however, could be considered propaganda. But when I use the word propaganda, I use it in its original context. Today we understand the word propaganda as a bad word. It has negative connotations. When I use the word propaganda, what I'm referring to is the work of Edward Bernays, who was an American theorist, a pioneer of the field of public relations. He wrote a book in 1923 called Crystallizing Public Opinion and published a book called Propaganda in 1928. And these books were the first theorization of public relations. Bernays is understood as a pioneer in the field of influencing public opinion. And in his work, he went on to work with many of large American corporations like Procter & Gamble and General Electric, but he also worked for politicians. And it's worth understanding how Edward Bernays approached this idea, describing the masses as irrational and subject to the herd instinct. And he talks about how to use crowd psychology and psychoanalysis to control groups of people in desirable ways. What is the desirable way to control people? <laughs> well, there is none really, but... Well, we have to think in terms of what is desirable emanates from the perspective of interests. So what is desirable depends upon what a group of people wants to achieve. We can get into these questions about, well, what are the interests of the intelligence community? What is the interest of the CIA, the NSA, the State Department? What is the interest of the FBI? You step into that territory, then you, you have a large group of the American public who are going to go immediately to conspiratorial theorizations about the interests 
in the diabolical nature of the CIA, the NSA, the State Department, the FBI. And, and it mainly has to do with we don't know specifically what they're doing because they are working on behalf of the nation and we don't they, no one is provided access to that information. So when the human mind is faced with a situation wherein it doesn't have information, it likes to fill in the gaps. And you can go to the dark side on that, or you can go to the the, uh, the more trusting, uplifting, bright side of that. We don't know. That's the conclusive place where we have to reside uncomfortably. What are the interests of Russia? What are the interests of China? What are the interests of other nation states who we're competing with on a, on a global level? Well, that's just another layer to this. What are the interests of corporations, the corporate lobbies, the industrial lobbies? What are the interests of the rights of groups of people in the United States? What are the interests of groups of people who have an anti-governmental bias as it relates to, let's say, a topic like taxation? Or people don't want their rights taken away, their individual rights being taken away. Or people want to see the rights of certain groups of people who are disadvantaged to be enhanced. And that there's a certain tension between individual rights and the groups of people who have their structural, have structural inhibitions, structural meaning within the context of this question about structure and agency in a society, how their rights are inhibited. And generally, the clamoring for power, this question about who gets to decide any of this, and all of the rhetoric that's involved, the persuasive arguments that are involved in achieving that power to decide and holding on to it. That's the complexity of our daily news cycle as it relates to this concept of objectivity and journalism in the history of that term. Interests. Who has the answers? And how do we know what's going on? So ultimately, we get down to this question. There's a reality, and then there's our perceptions about reality. And if we don't have enough of information, and stuff happens, and there becomes an open space to define meaning, and everyone rushes in on the basis of their own interests to define that meaning. What is objective perception? <laughs> Because now I'm able to navigate with these other races and have these conversations with these fucking ignorant people that don't understand how to, how to really talk, you know what I mean? Like how to communicate and, and, and keep things cool. They, they, they misunderstand what this guy says or misinterpret what this guy says. And next thing you know, it's hot it's for up. everybody, you know? And it's just misinterpretations. Yeah, because yeah, they're dumb. Most of these guys are dumb, bro. Like, they're stupid. <laughs> like the conversation, it made me, in some ways, you're sitting there listening to these guys, you're like, these guys really think this shit? Like, they Talk about the dumbest shit. Yeah. So that was an excerpt from a Joe Rogan Experience interview with Bobby Green, subtitled, Trying to Survive Prison as a First-Time Offender. This idea of groups of people in prison and how they make and share meaning with one another relates to the concept of moral tribes in a book that is called Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. There is an analogy that can be made to the ways in which our brains are designed for tribal life. And getting along with people who are like us and fighting off everyone who's them, not like us. Definition of the word demagogue. 
A demagogue is a political leader who seeks to appeal to the desire and prejudices of people rather than putting forward a rational argument. But this is important to rhetoric broadly, but this is important to the rhetoric of polarization specifically because it has to do with the villainization of the other in this argument about us versus them. Because human beings create and share meaning. And demagogues are political leaders that capitalize on the emotion. So what emotion has the capacity to do in the context of the writings of Daniel Coleman in his book, Emotional Intelligence in 1996? Emotion has the ability to hijack our rationality. Rhetoric is used by demagogues to hijack our rational thinking and bring about emotional responses to the meanings that we already inherently hold. Meanings that are buried deep within the attitudes, beliefs, and values that are important to us. Because there are tools that can be used to capitalize on what we know about people's innate attitudes, beliefs, and values. And we'll talk about that later in this episode. So for the purposes of advancing this conversation and describing why this podcast is different than other podcasts, I believe it's important to outline where the news in the public interest as it relates to politics has a difficulty having a view of broader philosophical concerns as they relate to ethical and moral considerations in the public sphere. Now that's a lot to take in, I understand, but I wanna give you a cogent contemporary example of what is playing out in American politics and then relate that to what is on the horizon for American politics in the coming months and years in terms of this broader war of extermination that occurs between Democrats and Republicans in American politics and how it plays out in American news as it relates to politics. Recently on CNN, New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman has discussed Republicans' recalibration of their persuasive argument or rhetoric on abortion rights. So what's happening is some Republicans that are up for re-election in general elections have recognized that a hard right position against abortion doesn't play very well with voters. So they're, they're changing their tone a little bit. So let's take a listen to what Maggie Haberman from the New York Times had to say about that on CNN. You know, I remember hearing from strategists uh, among Republicans a few months ago, this probably isn't going to matter that much. Well, that's not true. It actually yeah. has mattered a great deal. And, and they have still not figured out what their answer is. But you are right that the combination of Dobbs, and it's not just a political theoretical at this point, it's that you can point to various laws in various states. You can point to actions that are being taken against mothers, not just women uh, who are in search of abortion, but in terms of prenatal, prenatal care and after yeah. effects that have not been thought of when this law was undone nationally. And so I think you are seeing this combination of, of post-Dobbs energy animating Democrats in a, in a big way, combined with Donald Trump re-emerging as an issue. What I want to focus on here is not the horse race nature of the politics 
about who's going to win in the upcoming election, but rather I want to stay focused on the shift in the narrative or the public relations aspect of what is being said, because it, it's a, out of necessity that this change is being made. But in terms of changing their tone, it's not a, that they're changing their mind. They're just changing their public relations and marketing to soften the hard right language, or at least from a ethical view, they're not revealing their true feelings about it. And it's about a persuasive argument that they put forward in order to get votes. And on a, from a perspective of realpolitik, we can understand that that's what you have to do. But on another level, it's about incompatible ethical perspectives. And this notion of incompatible ethical perspectives brings me to my point. And my point is, is that the news, as it relates to politics, does not have the capacity to address incompatible ethical perspectives as they play out in the daily news cycle. Our notion of objectivity in journalism is concerned with journalistic professionalism and disinterestedness, factuality, and nonpartisanship. But what it doesn't give us a view of is being embedded in a reality and having a point of view. Because despite the, our desire to be neutral, we all have to stand somewhere. And we all have a perspective that comes from our education and our lived experience. And the reality is, is that there are people who have left-leaning attitudes, beliefs, and values. And there are people that have right-leaning attitudes, beliefs, and values. And within those perspectives, there is a diversity of attitudes, beliefs, and values that are constantly in conflict and do not align. So we have a notion of objectivity in journalism that attempts to avoid partiality, but it doesn't provide for a philosophical basis for this concept of neutrality in the spectrum of all these beliefs that coexist. The best that someone who is actually being objective can do is parrot back what someone says. So-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, I will have to leave it there. So that doesn't really serve to advance the discourse because it doesn't provide for the complexity that exists. Republican arguments about what is best from a normative ethical perspective are based on what could be described as deontological ethics. So what that means is they're evaluating the circumstances of abortion from the question of whether it is right or wrong under a series of rules that are about responsibility rather than the connection to the consequences of that action. Now, if you're viewing this ethical dilemma from the perspective of the consequences of the action, which could be called consequentialism or teleological ethics, you understand that these types of decisions have consequences. So there's a sense in which if you understand the broader 
long view of politics, you can understand that Republicans often make decisions based on deontological perspectives and then find out later that the consequences of those decisions are more complex than they may have anticipated. One example is going to become more and more clear over time of this divide between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics are the decisions made by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In his actions in the state of Florida, you, you can find examples of him making very quick deontological decisions based on his values. For example, the punishment of Disney around the taking over of this special Reedy Creek district and promising not to raise taxes. Now, this problem arose when Disney CEO Bob Chopek spoke out against Florida law that prohibited classroom discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity. And that caused Ron DeSantis' decision to Disney not be allowed the special district any longer and that the state of Florida would take over that $76 million bond debt. And they have been working out how to actually do that. But there was a very quick decision. And his decision is clearly based on a deontological view that there was only one right thing to do. And our final example in this, of course, is Ron DeSantis' firing of several public figures, one being the state attorney, Andrew Warren, and also the four school board members in Broward School District who wrote about the Parkland mass shooting. The idea of retributive justice is that if an offender does something wrong, they must suffer in return. The response to the crime is proportional to the offense. But having an attitude, belief, or a set of values in itself is not a crime worthy of punishment. But in the context of the rhetoric of polarization and the culture war, it seems to have become that. For this next segment, I want to start out with a personal story that will lead to a broader explanation of what I see as problematic in the broader context of news as it relates to politics and this conversation we've been having today about the rhetoric of polarization. Around 2011, I had finished my doctorate. I was in New York and I was attempting to sell this project to a media organization that I had invented, a program that would attempt to mediate the ideological divide between Fox News and MSNBC. It was a program that I was calling Beasts and Lunatics. And this idea of Beasts and Lunatics comes out of the writings of John Stuart Mill and an essay that he wrote called On Coleridge. And he says in that essay, there reigns a bellum interracinium, a war of extermination, one side accusing its opponents of being beasts, while the other condemns its rivals of being lunatics. And he goes on to say that neither one of them have any concern for the argument of the other, and they basically can't reconcile this problem. And he talks about that in the context of what was going on at the time. But that brings me to my story. So as I'm evaluating the, the intellectual landscape, what I discovered was an interesting thing going on in 2011 at the Army War College. The Army War College had shifted the focus of their suggested and required reading towards interpretation and understanding of worldview pertaining to 
both collaborators and enemies abroad. And what really fascinated me about that is I couldn't understand why they had become interested in the domain that I would consider to be cultural anthropology, because that's essentially the opposite of explanation and prediction. So I started asking the question, why would the Army War College be interested in interpretation and understanding? Because the problem that I was struggling with is that I understood that news as it related to politics was doing a lot of explaining and predicting, and it didn't have that ability to understand and interpret. And so I started asking the question, knowing what I knew, why would the Army War College think that that's important? Because also, at the same time, I knew that that would upset the political right, because the political right is generally not interested in interpretation and understanding. They're interested in the right, final, and true answer, and they want that to be put forward. So I, I saw the, the problematic nature of what they were attempting to achieve, and I said, well, there must be for a reason. But what I came to understand around that same time was there was U.S. intelligence work in natural language processing, cognitive science, and cognitive linguistics that had to do with helping decision makers in the world of mass communication and global interaction understand the shared concepts and worldviews of members of other cultures of interest. And what I'm talking about specifically is a project at an organization called IARPA, is like DARPA. This is the intelligence research group of the U.S. government. And IARPA is the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. And it's similar to DARPA, DARPA being the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, IARPA is focused on high-risk, high-payoff research programs as related to the intelligence community. So in this context, IARPA at circa 2011 was looking at metaphors and metaphors and how they, are, they shape how people think about complex topics and how metaphors influence and are indicators of specific types of beliefs. So their research on metaphors was looking at inferred meanings as they are embedded in worldview. So as I understood that connection, I began to understand why the Army War College was making these specific changes. And what emerged after that was something I did not expect because I, I could see this, but what I didn't see coming was where that would lead in terms of public discourse. I understood how the metaphor project, as it was outlined and worked on within IARPA, as relating to the work of George Lakoff, who is a uh, researcher at the University of California at Berkeley. He is a cognitive scientist and a linguist, and he wrote a book in 2004 called Don't Think of an Elephant. And Don't Think of an Elephant is a book specifically about elections and communicating and issues in American politics. And he explains how conservatives think and how to counter their arguments from the perspective of the Democratic Party. And this research in linguistics and in cognitive science about moral politics really helped me understand the concept of the metaphor project and its ambitions. But what I didn't understand at the time was how that related to public discourse in the sense of what emerged with Cambridge Analytica. At the time, 
I did know about SCL Group. Now, SCL Group was the kind of the antecedent company, a British behavioral research and communications company that led to the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal. I knew about SCL, but I didn't know about Cambridge Analytica. So if you're not familiar with Cambridge Analytica, they were a British consulting firm that was a subsidiary of SCL, and they were led by Nigel Oakes, Alexander Nix, and with Nix as the CEO, and they worked with a Conservative Party in the UK, British royal family members of British military. And then this led to work in some data collection in the United States that involved Facebook. So in March of 2018, some stories emerged about how Cambridge Analytica does business. There was an article in the New York Times and in the Observer, and it talked about how this company had acquired personal data about Facebook users, and they were supposed to be collecting it for academic purposes, but, but they were using this personal data acquired through a Facebook app called This Is Your Digital Life to begin to develop profiles on 87 million users of Facebook. And what those profiles enabled you to do was to understand through specific types of artificial intelligence tools, the underlying attitudes, beliefs, and values of the these 87 million users. So, so Cambridge Analytica's work was based primarily on the academic work of Mikhail Kozinski, and he did psychometrics research at Cambridge University. And the interesting thing about psychometrics is you know, it's a field of study within psychology that's concerned with the theories and techniques of measurement. And there's a sense in which it's relatively harmless to the extent that it's just telling us more about how to measure people's intelligence. They're using tool measurements and measurement theories to understand from an empirical perspective with reliability and validity how people are wired. It only becomes problematic to the extent that it engages with propaganda. So psychometrics in itself is not inherently problematic, but it becomes problematic when we use it in this context of using artificial intelligence to study the behavior of American voters. So it becomes problematic when SEL and Cambridge Analytica turn their attention to using the tools of psychology and the tools of public relations to target propaganda in social media to persuade people towards a specific point of view. And in that sense, there, one could argue that they're manipulating voters and actually subverting the democratic process. And it's about audience segmentation in psychographic analysis to achieve a, a deeper knowledge of a target audience. And they did that through big five modeling of, of personality types. And then they could do behavioral micro-targeting, which could predict what the, these subjects needed to hear over time to be persuaded. And so they were working on ways to create actionable language that would prompt the audience to respond in emotional ways. So they were looking at voter segments and using these, their understanding of the different personality styles of every American adult that they had 
a data sample of, they could create language that could be used in ad messages and voter contact scripts that would inherently understand their stance on particular issues that matter to them. And it became a way in which you could have the upper hand to create scripts that, that align with voters' innate attitudes, beliefs, and values, and ultimately persuade their preferences in a direction. Now, there are arguments against what I've just said that say that's complete BS, psychographics don't work, psychographics aren't used in politics, psychographic models are not effective, but ultimately that's what this is all about. Now, where this is important and where this, where the rubber hits the road with this is in a domain of artificial intelligence called predictive behavior modeling. And this is an area of predictive analytics that is used to predict or model the future behavior of people. Now, it's used primarily in marketing, advertising, and public relations. And you can develop neural networks and assign a probability score to these neural networks in relationship to a data set. And if that data set is the American public, then we can begin to predict future behavior and begin to understand on the basis of people's attitudes, beliefs, and values as they are outlined in a data set, how they might take action in the future. And that action pertains to voting. So then you can begin to model certain outcomes based on what you know about your data set. So predictive behavior modeling is actually a useful tool because you can predict the outcomes in relationship to what you understand about what people believe and how they might respond to certain things that you say to them. And so this is the place in which marketing, advertising, and public relations connects with the algorithmic models and how those algorithmic models can be trained based on specific campaigns and strategies that are targeted to particular groups of people with particular groups of attitudes, beliefs, and values. So now you can understand specifically why this was of importance to the Army War College in 2011 and why understanding metaphor was interesting to the intelligence community in 2011. Now, where we are today is we're much further along in all of this. And I can say with a lot of confidence that the American public is not really aware of how exactly artificial intelligence and the tools of data collection in social media are being used to shape public conversations in the media and to yield emotional responses that are tied directly to the rhetoric of polarization and at the service of demagogue politicians. So that's all we're going to have time for today, but I appreciate you joining me here on My Friend Voldemort. In the next episode, we're going to go into this a little bit deeper. We're going to continue to outline these questions about truth, meaning, and objective perception as it relates to news in the public interest and enhancing the public discourse in the United States and all the challenges that exist 
in our time in this nation at this moment. This is my friend Voldemort. I'm Dennis Stevens. Thank you for joining me. And in the immortal words of the great Ringo Starr, peace and love, peace and love.